This is Pod Academy. I'm Ishan Kader. In this podcast, we will be uncovering the story of the new left in Latin America. We're joined by Jeffrey Weber, lecturer in international relations at Queen Mary University and author of Red October. I started by asking Jeffrey Weber about the history and emergence of the new left in Latin America. If you go a little further back in history, the early 1990s, for example, the Latin American left had seemed to have reached its nadir, its lowest point in the 20th century. And there are a number of reasons for this that are important to understand if we're going to try to understand why it is that they were able to re-articulate. And for those of us interested in re-articulating left projects in Europe from a fairly low point, at least in northern Europe, these kinds of lessons can be can be useful, I think. So back in the early 1990s, you have a situation in which physically much of the organizational basis of the traditional Latin American left had been destroyed by military power. So if you look in the southern cone, Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, and so on, Chile, you had a period between the 60s, mid-60s and 80s, depending on where you're talking about, of uh, brutal authoritarian assaults on labor unions, peasant associations, uh, left-wing parties, human rights organizations, and their family members, and so on. So just to take one example, in Argentina between 1976 and 1983, the bureaucratic authoritarian regime eliminates you know, 30,000 organized activists. And so as you might expect, it takes generations to reorganize these bases even once electoral democracy has emerged. And in Central America, you have a similar example of physical annihilation of huge layers of the organized left, in this case, mostly through counterinsurgency targeting mass guerrilla organizations. So in, in Guatemala and El Salvador, you have a situation in which uh, you know, major guerrilla forces with, with a mass base are fighting to stalemates with, um, with right-wing authoritarian regimes. In Nicaragua, there's a successful Sandinista revolution between 1979 that lasts all the way to the 90s. And in the, in the 1980s, under, under Ronald Reagan's support in the U.S., you see a, a counterinsurgent project to eliminate that entire, uh, that entire wave of forces. And it was very successful, seen from their perspective, in the sense that if you just look at Guatemala, 200,000 dead in the two years of the early 1980s. Um, so there's a physical annihilation in much of Central America, much of South America of the old forces of organization. Uh, and that was really, that physical annihilation was, was a very important and very poorly understood initiator for neoliberalism. Neoliberal economic restructuring could not have unfolded in the 1980s and 1990s without the preliminary uh, assault on, the, on those forces that might have been able to, at least in a defensive way, uh, slow, slow those measures, if not stop them. And ideologically, in a situation in which the Soviet Union is collapsing and then its client states, and even for those sections of the left, and there were many of them in Latin America, which never saw the Soviet Union as some kind of paradise, it was nonetheless very ideologically confusing for the one counterweight in the world to, to fall. And it had very material, immediate material impacts for, for sections of the, of the left. So the, the Cuban Revolution enters into a, a crisis right away, this so-called special period of the early 90s, because this entire sugar quota ends with the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Nicaraguan Revolution comes to an end in 1990 uh, through elections after a decade of, of counterinsurgency civil war. And so ideologically, it becomes increasingly difficult to even talk about a socialist alternative without sounding ridiculously naive and romantic. I mean, because the social forces that might carry out that project don't seem to be there. And ideologically, apart from that physical annihilation and ideological 
uh, collapse of the far left, the, the social democratic or center left, the Christian Democrats, the social democrats, and so on, start to move dramatically to the right over the 80s and 90s, almost uniformly. Okay? And therefore, the organized social movement left starts retreating into localized projects of community defense without any real sense of political projection to contesting power, even at the national level, never mind the regional level. So the 80s and 90s was a real period of neoliberal hegemony and quintessentially uncontested neoliberal advance. With, um, but I still want to argue that, that those exceptions are mostly defensive struggles, however heroic. So you have the, the, the 1989 Caracaso, the, the famous uh, riots in, in, in Venezuela uh, against the austerity measures there, you have the even more famous internationally, the Zapatista rebellion in, in, in southern Mexico, in Chiapas, in the state of Chiapas. But I think, and, and, and then probably most successfully, although less lesser known, perhaps, is the landless rural workers movement in Brazil, which over the course of this 1990s, you, you have millions of people in that movement. It's probably the biggest movement of landless rural workers in the, in the world. But nonetheless, all of these movements, even these most successful movements in the 90s, are engaging in basically defensive struggles. And the rest of the tide is towards right-wing governments at the state level, imperial triumphalism on the part of the U.S. because the Soviet Union is out of the picture. And so you see the informalization of the urban world of work, the dispossession of peasants, increasing levels of, uh, of poverty and inequality, attacks on the, what, was, what existed as a welfare state, never in the sense of advanced capitalist countries, but even the limited welfare state there was was, was collapsing, all with the promise that neoliberal ideology offered, which said that we're never offering you equality, that equality is a hindrance on growth. But we are offering you uh, a sense in which, with this short-term gain of, short-term pain of austerity, trade liberalization, financialization, and so on, you're going to see the private sector replace the exiting uh, public sector and, cr- and create aggregate levels of growth that allow for a movement out of poverty of, of hundreds of millions. This was the offer. Well, it was about a 20-year experiment, and none, none of this transpired. And there's basically no region of the world in which you see as close to an orthodox experimentation with the Washington Consensus than Latin America. And then at the end of that, uh, South America enters into its worst recession uh, since the 1980s debt crisis. Between 1998 and 2002, financial crises that were happening elsewhere in the world, Southeast Asia with the crisis in 97, then Russia in 1998, reverberate back into South America, 1999 and Brazil in a major way, and then just explodes in Argentina in 2001. But what it meant in aggregate terms in in South America, you have a situation in which you have negative growth rates, increases in, in, in aggregate levels of poverty and inequality in those four years, on top of 20 years of regression, we're offering as, a, as an exit to the crisis an acceleration of of neoliberalism. Their argument was, although we've rhetorically committed to this because of political obstacles, we haven't been able to carry carry through. Uh, but this time it didn't pay off, and you start to see the emergence of uh, an extra-parliamentary and then later a parliamentary left throughout particularly South America, but also seeping into parts of Central America. The coming to power of Chavez, Morales and Correa has been hailed as the Pink Revolution. It heralded a new hope for alternatives to the Washington Consensus. Have there been any concrete policies undertaken by these administrations that showcase a new alternative form of political economic governance in Latin America? Right, so I think there's there's a mixed story here. The first thing that needs to be said, I think, is that 
any policies that you're talking about in these three countries need to be understood in their basic relationship to the world market at the time. So the major determining, I, I would argue, the most important thing is that at the end of this recession in 2002, you have a turnaround that's quite dramatic in South America that actually begins before the ascension to office of, of most left-wing or center-left parties. And that's driven by the, the re-dynamism of the, of the zone of accumulation in China, which sparks a tremendous demand for the basic commodities produced in South America in particular. And this means an acceleration in the price of virtually every commodity that South America focuses on. And so you see, I mean, it differs depending on the case, but in Venezuela, the price of oil starts picking up dramatically. Not, not, obviously not exclusively because of China, in the case, it also had to do with re-articulation of OPEC at that time, which had previously been quite uh, inactive, and, and Chavez was, was quite important in, in rejuvenating OPEC. But it also meant that the, the basic pace of growth in the world driven by China was, was, was improving in, the, in, in this period between 2003 and 2008, basically, just when the crisis hits. So oil in the case of Venezuela, natural gas in the case of Bolivia, monocultural agro-industrial exports in the case of Argentina and Brazil, uh, and mining minerals in the case of Peru, Chile, and so on. So you see actually a relative deindustrialization happening in places like Brazil, which is moving towards capital-intensive farming, basically. And what this meant, it was important that governments describing themselves in different ways as center-left or left, and the three cases we're most interested in here, Ecuador, Venezuela, and Bolivia, describe themselves as, the, as on the kind of harder edge. It was important that they were elected on those projects because their biggest achievement, I would say, is in the realm of, of what's called you know, reproduction or consumption, basically, the, uh, as separate from production. So if you look at basic social welfare initiatives, education, anti-poverty campaigns, health care, a redistribution of basically an increase in the rents that they were taking in, meaning the revenue that the state was able to capture from the increase in commodity activity and the increase in trade and the reorientation of trade towards East Asia, you have a relatively more, a relatively higher rate of redistribution of some of these resources to the populace with quite important effects in terms of reducing poverty levels, better in some countries and, and less dramatic in others. But in Ecuador, Bolivia, and particularly in Venezuela, Venezuela's the most dramatic gains, you see improvements uh, contingent upon commodity prices. And this is where it all becomes quite complicated, because if you look at the history of Latin America, basing a, an emancipatory future on the consistency of commodity prices has never been a safe bet. And so the other thing to, to think about in the case of Bolivia that shows what in appearance is quite a radical measure, uh, I would argue is actually substantively quite less radical in terms of policy than, than its appearance would suggest. And that is the so-called nationalization of natural gas in 2006. Now, it was the biggest promise that the, that the Morales government uh, made. It was one of the biggest demands of the movements. But basically what you see is not a nationalization in the sense that it's historically been understood as some kind of expropriation of private wealth, so investments by multinational corporations, petroleum companies, and so on, but rather an extended, over the course of the eight to ten months, an extended renegotiation of, of royalty rates and taxes. And so we, what you saw is a movement from a very, very low taxation rate, incredibly low, one of the lowest in the world, to one that's about average. But that quite modest measure had extraordinary repercussions for state revenue because it 
corresponded with a major uptick in the price of international gas. So suddenly, I mean, there would have been an uptick anyway then for revenue to the state, but this was accelerated because of a quite modest increase in taxes, which allowed, again, for real social gains. So it depends to what extent this is a break with Washington consensus depends on on how you define the Washington consensus. If it's a set of policies, then there have been a set of different policies in the contemporary period. My own reading is that there are deeper continuities than than that would suggest. If you read the Washington Consensus as a class project of the restoration of capitalist class power, the capitalist class has not been very, very far away from being expropriated. It hasn't even had its taxes increased uh, in the case of Bolivia and Ecuador. Uh, in Venezuela, it's slightly different. But so in the, in the realm of production, production is oriented toward profit, still controlled principally by multinational capital, both in Ecuador and, and Bolivia, and you, with these important social gains contingent on a commodities boom. Uh, so taking uh, Bolivia specifically, what were the, the key social, cultural, and political conditions or processes that allowed MPS to emerge as the government in 2006? Okay, so that's a great question because for many in the in kind of popular accounts in the media and so on, particularly in the the anglophone sphere of media production, history of the left in contemporary Bolivia starts with the election of Evo Morales, and I think you're right to point toward the preceding history because without this, there's no way to understand why Morales came to office or was able to do so. And basically, to take quite a complicated story and make it as short as possible, you have a period between 1985 and 2000 in Bolivia where, apart from perhaps Chile under under Pinochet, you have the most orthodox example of, of neoliberal restructuring anywhere. Uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, And Jeffrey Sachs, the Harvard economist and IMF official, this is one of his first, before he went to Poland, before he went to traveling around uh, the collapsing Soviet Union, destroying people's lives, he went to to Bolivia, where he helped to write the structural adjustment program of 1985. And the first assault was on the miners had to be defeated in the case of Bolivia. To bring it into a context that some listeners might understand better, if, if Ronald Reagan had to defeat the uh, air traffic controllers and if Thatcher had to uh, defeat the miners, this was the kind of Bolivian moment of that. And the tin, But more important in the sense because the tin miners had been the, uh, the leading uh, force on the Bolivian left since the early 1930s. And it was, they privatized the entire mining industry and destroyed the, the, the basis of that left. So an entire historic, basically the, the traditional forms of class struggle uh, and the left political forms of left projects that emerged out of that were really historically transformed. And this had tremendous effects because what it meant was that for the next 15 years, it was more or less smooth sailing for the right-wing coalitions that were in, that were in power. And the principal source of resistance in a defensive way in that period was a fairly bizarre phenomenon, or not so bizarre when you think about it closely, but on the surface bizarre, uh, a repeasantization process of a particular kind. You see ex-miners um, doing as they should according according to neoliberal logic, responding to their comparative advantage, meaning you know countries should focus on producing that commodity which they can produce most cheaply and sell most dearly on the international market. Well, that happened to be cocaine in the, in the case of Bolivia. And the coca-growing regions of 
the Chapari region in the, in the Department of Cochabamba is where many people were unemployed started to re-peasantize, but in a, in a bizarre way in the sense that, you know, smallholding peasants have not historically been the source of, of revolutionary resistance, obviously with some exceptions. But in this case, their livelihoods depended upon an illegal crop, illegal when produced for cocaine. Obviously, coca can be used for many things. And it is in the domestic blooming economy. But this cocoa was being grown for uh, international distribution. And these were the, the lowest end of the cocaine commodity chain, uh, with most of the actual production and high-end value-added happening in Colombia. And so you're talking about the, you know, the, the people who have it worse. They, but nonetheless, it was, the, it was the best option for livelihood. And this was being attacked at the same time by the Drug Enforcement Agency, again with the revival of the so-called War on Drugs. The militarization of this zone developed a, a really strong anti-imperialist uh, ideology among the cocolero or the coca grower movement, which developed trade union structures and brought together both indigenous traditions of struggle inside of the pre-existing peasantry of the zone, together with Trotskyist and narco-syndicalist traditions from the, the movement of ex-miners who were re-peasantized. And it is precisely in that milieu that Evo Morales is pol- politicized. In the 80s, he's a teenager, uh, and he becomes a, uh, a leading Cocolero peasant union. And the Cocoleros become, out of the Cocoleros, they form the Movimiento Socialismo, or the Movement Towards Socialism Party, in the late 1990s. And at the beginning, this is a party that, you know, engages in elections for propagandistic reasons, but there's no sense in which it's, they're thinking they're going to win the presidential elections. And it's mostly municipal elections, which they actually sweep in the Kogurai region for kind of obvious reasons. That was the main struggle in the in the 90s. But in 2000, things you know really shift once more uh, with the privatization of water in the city of Cochabamba, a World Bank-driven project. And then at the presidential level, you have Hugo Banzer, a former dictator who was then elected in office, and a terrible right-wing uh, mayor uh, inside of the city of Cochabamba. You know, again, think about when this is being introduced, 1999-2000, this is in the context of the generalized recession that I talked about earlier. Uh, and the answer of all of these people to the recession is we need to, we need to accelerate experiment of neoliberalism. And in this case, it was something that just hadn't been considered before the privatization of, of water. So, I mean, this meant some fairly dramatic things for people, very very immediate basic grievances of two kinds, basically, for, for the ur- urban sector, urban popular poor. Some people who were integrated into, like, so they had title to the land, even though they were poor, they had some kind of property, and they were connected into the municipal water distribution of potable water and so on. It meant a dramatic hike in the tariffs that they had to pay, such that they basically couldn't pay them, uh, and, and it meant cho- choosing between potable water and f- food and what have you. On the peripheries of this, people with less stable title to the land, perhaps no title to the land, squatters and so on, as you go out, the poorer the urban periphery becomes, farther away from urban markets and so on, less desirable land. They had, even though they had no access to the public water of the municipality, they had out of their own self-organization, built wells, built you know distribution networks of water in the longest-standing communities. But technically, it fell within the parameter of the concession that was awarded to Bechtel, the corporation without a competitor that won the bid, which is against the Bolivian constitution. There was no competitor, but didn't prove to be an obstacle. So Bechtel assumes control, and these people, their own wells that they, that they dug were the property of Bechtel, now taxed to access their own water. So there was a grievance that was based on territorial, communal kind of aspects of reproduction, but it connected all of the working class communities of Cochabamba. And what's important is that it was a particular 
Federation of Workers grasped the importance of this. And it was the Federation of Factory Workers under the leadership of a shoemaker, Oscar Oliveira. And this is a strange union in the sense that these were people, the highest paid factory workers who had won the, the best decent working class lives, some of the few people who had pay that allowed them to live. They saw what was happening to the working class and they oriented outwards to defend the, the class as a whole. And they opened up their offices in the central plaza to anyone who had problems. Informal workers focusing on women and youth, um, and they held a May Day uh, worker school, had consistently for years brought in people uh, talking about workers' issues in the city of Cochabamba. And so it was out of this organic relationship with all kinds of layers of the working class that became the central kind of force of the what was called the coordinadora, the coordinator of the what became a, a, a week-long insurrection at two different periods that took over the city of Cochabamba uh, and reversed the privatization of water. What you see happen out of this is that the Cochabamba victory, it was in the same way as the Caracaso in, in Venezuela or other moments. It was a defensive struggle in the very basic sense. It was, but it quickly turned, as sometimes in the better moments these things do, from a defensive struggle around an immediate grievance of a basic kind into a politicization that, that starts to extend demands. And this was the first victory in 15 years of any kind. And so the coordinadora became, in some senses, a model of about how we might organize in this, in this new period. And you see for the next five years, throughout different parts of the country, reverberations of, of similar kinds of struggles start to emerge, both rural around similar issues of land privatization, water privatization, access to water and land, and so on, and then also in the cities. So there's basically constant battles going on in the western part of the country, but it reaches a crescendo in 2003-2005 in what are called the, the gas wars. And this is where you see over a five-year cycle how... A defensive struggle around water has become, at least at the level of framing the, the battle, a, a battle over the social control and nationalization of the central source of foreign exchange in the economy, the control of natural gas. So deposits were found by a public state-owned company in the mid-90s and then almost immediately privatized. In other words, a major gift of already found materials to multinational petroleum companies that just had to sink, sink their wells. So the mobilizations geographically shifted the capital, La Paz, and it's very importantly its proletarian suburb, a uh, shanty town called El Alto, which is formerly a separate city, but it's a contiguous urban area. And inside of El Alto, so inside of Bolivia, you have a situation in which 62% of the population self-identifies indigenous which is very unique in the Latin American context, one of only two countries that indigenous people survived the Spanish conquest in a majoritarian position. In the Chatitana Vel Alto, you have 82% self-identify as indigenous, and by my calculations, you have somewhere between 92 to 97% proletarian uh, population. If we think of proletarian or working class as people whose labor is commodified in various ways and who don't live off the labor of others. So you have a working class indigenous community that has become a cauldron of all of the best organizational traditions of recently dispossessed people that have very recently landed there in a very new context. Ex-miners, dispossessed Aymara peasants from the, from the western Andes and so on, trying to survive in this new context. And they form what are called the Federation of Neighborhood Councils, which becomes the principal urban force around pushing for the what are called the gas wars of 2003-2005. But they do this in coordination with formal sector unions, the, you know, the still existing miners' unions, but also the public sector worker unions, which is very rad in the capital city and in Al Alto, the major peasant federation, and so on. 
this major coordinated effort, and they they bring in 2003 and 2005. First in 2003, they bring the the country to or the western part of the country to a halt. So just to give you a sense of what this was like, La Paz exists in a in a very pe- peculiar geographic arrangement in which it used to be very ancient times, a lake in the mountains. The lake is no longer there. You have a very very deep valley, and so all of the housing runs up the runs up the sides of the valley, and then on the top what's called the Altiplano, or a high plateau, is suddenly you have this, this kind of barren terrain at 4,100 meters, where the shantytown is. And the shantytown is up there because it is freezing, there's no wind protection, it is not a desirable place to live. You go from there to southern La Paz, and you have almost you know, 10 degrees Celsius difference at certain times of the year. And so the, you have a proletarian population that comes down and works in the city, effectively. This wasn't a very strategic location, historically, nor is it in the contemporary period to to host your ruling class because there are very few exits from the valley. The highway going through El Alto controls the circulation of commodities to Peru, Chile, Argentina, and so on. This becomes important because although we're not talking about a struggle at the point of production in the case of El Alto, but in this case, you really could shut down major flows of the of the economy by road blockades. And this was, I mean, the, at a psychological level for the ruling class inside of La Paz, this was a, you know, it mobilized their most deeply felt racial fears of indigenous insurrection. Going back to, I mean, on the lips of both uh, the white mestizo mixed race ruling class in southern La Paz who lived like it's a little Manhattan, and also on the lips of the indigenous proletarian classes was the name of Tupac Katari, who in the same capital in 1781, shut down in the biggest revolt against the Spanish colonizers that same capital for, for three weeks, starving them out. So in 2003-2005, they overthrow, they, they take over and shut down the capital, and they set the stage for, through the removal of two neoliberal presidents, Gonzalo Sanchez de Losada in 2003, Carlos Mesa, Sanchez de Losada's vice president, 14 months later, they set a situation in which a vacuum of power is opened up, and in my reading, this had very little to do with the movement towards Socialism Party and Evo Morales in terms of the organization of these revolts. And in fact, they were much behind in terms of the demands and always a kind of multi-class moderating force seeking constitutional exits to what may have been pre-revolutionary situations. But nonetheless, the great virtue of the movements was their ability to self-organize and mobilize hundreds of thousands on a sustained, remarkable basis, bring down two presidents. But their weakness was no political formation that expressed the same kinds of demands that they were generating organically from their associations, unions, neighborhood assemblies, and so on, that could deal with the question of power once they had opened up the vacuum. So they had the ability to take down presidents, but what to do was not not something that they had been able to, to organize around. And so the one force that was around, that did have, you know, a cabinet ready to be put in place, could assume elections at the time, and had some association with the left on a multi-regional basis, crossing different indigenous nationalities and so on. The only force in that situation was the Movement Towards Socialism Party, Neva Morales, who was Aymara but lived in the Quechua-speaking zone for most of his life had links to different sections in a way that no other political leader did. And it was that reason, at that moment, that the Movement Towards Socialism Party was first able to negotiate with the outgoing elite to say, if you don't negotiate with us, we're going to let these people do whatever they want, which will turn out to be nasty for you. If you negotiate with us, we can channel some of this support into early elections. So elections that were planned for 2007 are moved up to 2005. 
And in those elections, you have very mixed feelings amongst the most radical sectors. You have a situation in which you obviously caused those elections. You obviously threw out the outgoing president. Those are your actions that, that did that. And you're electing for the first time in Republican histories since independence in 1825, despite a majoritarian situation that an indigenous person is going to be elected. So in terms of race relations, this is a similar dynamic to Nelson Mandela's 1994 election in South Africa. But unfortunately, the similarities don't end there in the sense that the the way in which Morales, once he assumes office, separates these struggles that were combined, a struggle for an end to class exploitation rooted in imperialism and the specific phase of capitalism that they were living through, neoliberalism, with demands for indigenous liberation and decolonization of the state and race relations in the country. Because any time you talk about capitalism or neoliberalism inside of Bolivia, you need to understand it as quintessentially racialized in its form. The way that people experience class exploitation and racial oppression were very intimately intertwined. And so it's not surprising that there was a combined liberation struggle that really impossible to imagine that you can achieve one without the other. But nonetheless, the Morales promise is precisely that. A cultural, what he calls a cultural democratic revolution, or what the vice president has called Andean Amazonian capitalism, a capitalism that is apparently nice to indigenous people, meaning you can express your languages, there are more indigenous people in the Congress. Those are very important historical achievements that aren't the product of the benevolence of the people who are currently in the in office. But that's been quite separate from, in very open ways, from a transformative project to end division on the basis of class. And so the project becomes the creation of an indigenous bourgeoisie, and that is seen to be somehow a liberatory process, which is very, very distinct from the notions of, of, of what, they, what the movements were thinking of. Are there hopes that the Bolivarian Alliance, or ALBA as it's known, can actually fulfil the interests of mass indigenous or worker-based social movements in Bolivia, Ecuador and Venezuela? And if they can't, what kind of structural changes are needed? To start off with a sense of, of what it is so that we can determine its its substance and character and change over time, it begins as a fairly modest, important but fairly modest project. The idea is floated in a kind of very preliminary form without the present name or anything by Chavez at the Quebec Free Trade Summit in Quebec City, which incidentally, as a student at McGill University, I was part of those protests in which more tear gas in the history of the Canadian state Inside, Hugo Chavez was the only invited leader who spoke against the initiative being advanced by the American administration for the free trade area of the Americas. And the idea of the free trade area of the Americas was that we would have, on the kind of operative model of North American free trade agreement, which had already integrated Canada, the United States, and Mexico, a free trade area of the Americas would run from Canada down to Argentina in the south, incorporating everywhere. More or less, this was the free trade area of the Americas. And the entire idea, as with NAFTA, had very little to do with free trade, everything to do with the concretization of investment rights of principally U.S. and Canadian capital. So Chavez was opposed to this, but it was only by 2004 that you see the formalization of came to be known as the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America, or ALBA for its Spanish acronym. It initially involved just a few countries, uh, principally Bolivia, Cuba, and Venezuela. And as part of it, there was a what was called a, a people's trade agreement between these three countries. And the idea was we're going to trade not on the basis of exchange value or market exchange, but on the basis of solidarity and principles of moving towards an egalitarian South American unity, beginning with these three countries. And what it meant in practice, given the three countries that were operating within it, one very, very rich country, 
rich by oil wealth, Venezuela, Bolivia, the poorest country in South America, and Cuba, a relatively poor country, but with some extraordinary things to add to the equation, principally its health industry, the best healthcare system in, in Latin America or the Caribbean. As an example of the arrangements, you had Venezuelan oil money financing Cuban doctors to go into, principally in the, in the thousands, go into Venezuela to serve in the poorest urban and rural areas, not just as a kind of charity function and save some lives and then leave. And the idea was to train people to reproduce, reproduce it once they'd left. And in the participating countries... You also had the students in Bolivia can now can go to Cuba to study, to be doctors for free, provided that once they return, they spend five years of their practice, the initial five years of their practice, going to wherever they're told to go, which means the least attractive places in the country. So that's a very basic example of the sorts of mechanisms that they were attempting to, to do. Petro Caribe was another one, the poorest countries of the Caribbean, enter into an, an alliance called Petro Caribe, which was part of the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America. Few sources of, of foreign exchange. So buying oil is, is a major determinant of, of moving investment away from investment in meeting human need to invest in, in oil. So subsidized oil from Venezuela in exchange for often payment in kind, so whatever their exports were. And then obviously very political kind of you know, providing subsidized oil for people in the Bronx and stuff like this, which was projected through ALBA, but was obviously a political act of solidarity rather than responding to an emergency. I mean, and there were other major long-term aims, establishing Banco Sur, a bank of the South, establishing a unitary currency, the Sucre. These are what have basically not transpired. And they were theorized, discussed, and so on, but you have not seen movement toward that. And part of the reason is that you basically have a competition between what I take to be Brazilian sub-imperial power inside of South America as one project and Venezuela-led alliances as another. Now, the argument against what I've just said is that Brazil and Venezuela frequently act in unison when it is in their interest. But this isn't that surprising. Effectively, what Brazil is attempting to do is sometimes act in correspondence with U.S. imperial aims when it's necessary and when it's possible to assert itself independently. And it wants it to assert itself independently in a way that is very quite, quite different than what Venezuela was discussing through its ALBA initiative. And so what you've seen is that, in fact, the most important regional integration project is not ALBA, ultimately. That's the most promising one as a transitional form towards something. It's certainly not a socialist project, but as a transitional form to be supported by the left, I definitely think so in terms of creating some kind of autonomy from outside control. But what is called the Unity of South American Nations, or UNASUR, which is much more dramatically led by Brazil, is what has and has integrated all the countries of South America, including Colombia under Manuel Santos, Sebastian Piñera of the right in Chile, all of them participate in this. And that operates at the geopolitical level of saying, you know, making some important stands actually, but not always for principled reasons. But UNASUR has, for example, in the recent Venezuelan elections that the United States refused to recognize without a recount, UNASUR's declared this to be a... immediately declared all of the countries of South America, including those on the right, this was a legitimate process, which may seem to be purely symbolic, but it means that, I mean, what that has meant historically is that declaring an election illegitimate is is the precursor typically in Latin American history to, to a coup. And so the fact that, that, that the U.S. has lost 
reliable client states to help carry that out is an important initiative. But Brazil is at the head of UNASUR, not Venezuela. That was Dr. Jeffrey Weber. Thank you for listening. This is Pod Academy.